Will you turn with me to God's Word? It's John chapter 1. And you'll find that on page 887 of the, the Bibles that are in the pews. How are we doing? We all there? Okay, let's stand for the reading of God's Word. And before we read, I'm going to pray that the Lord would help us to understand what He's saying to us this morning. So as we stand, let's pray. Our Father, we, we thank You that You are not silent, that You are a speaking God. That because you love us and you want us to know you better, you've given us your word. And we pray now that by your spirit, you would open the eyes of our hearts. So that as we look at your word, we would, as we sung just now, indeed see Christ. And we pray that the sight of him would transform our hearts. That where we are proud... Would you please humble us and where our hearts are broken, we ask that a sight of your son would put our hearts back together again and heal us and make us strong. And we pray that that we might go into another week fit to serve you. We pray it in the, for the honor of Jesus. Amen. John chapter 1, beginning to read at verse 43. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote. Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus answered him, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Do sit down. My wife and I were once walking in the Harz Mountains in Germany, and it started to snow, and we started to lose visibility. And we had this sort of funny feeling that we were, we were going around in circles, and I was carrying my two-year-old son on a, a backpack, and 
He, he was definitely getting heavier and heavier, and it was getting colder and colder, and we realized we were completely lost. And we were just starting to get a little worried when we met another walker with all the gear. And he said, you lost? And we said, yeah. And he said, where do you need to go? And we explained where we needed to get to. And he said, follow me. And we followed him. And when he went left, we went left. When he went right, we went right. We, we followed him. And he led us back to where we needed to be. He led us home. And Jesus of Nazareth said to everyone whom he met, and he says to each one of us this morning, follow me. On your journey through life, if you don't want to get lost, follow me. Do what I do. Love what I love. Hate what I hate. Stick with me every step of the way, and I will get you home. And we're thinking, what? Why, why, why would anyone do that? Why would anyone follow Jesus of Nazareth today? I mean, why would Donna stand up in front of all these people and make a, a public commitment to following Jesus of Nazareth? I mean, the truth is we don't much fancy the idea of following anyone. The new core value of Western culture is the whole idea that I have the right to be self-determining. I have the right to decide for myself what I believe, how I live, who I am. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. I'm not going to follow anyone, except on Twitter, of course. But actually, it's more than Twitter. I remember at high school, um, this new rule came in when I was at high school that, that, that our hair at, at the back had to be above the collar, yeah? So what we did is we all grew our fringes down long to our chins, which meant we had to look at our teachers sideways like that, you see. We thought we were being really rebellious. And it's only now, <laughs> when I look back at photos of the late 80s, that I realized that's how everyone had their hair. We, we thought we were such rebels. Actually, we were just conforming. We were just following the crowd. And it seems to me you don't grow out of it as you get older. The crowd we follow says you have to, you have to do well at school, and then you have, to, you have to have a beautiful family and a beautiful home. And, and that, that is a dream that begins to eat us up. You see, it's not just we want, you know, the fast cars and the fancy vacations. It's we, we want to be important. And the culture around us has told us that importance is all tied up with the car you drive and the house you can afford. And where have we got that idea from? We're just following along. It's what we all do. The conclusions we come to about love, about politics, about religion. I mean, none of us is original. We're all following someone. You might be an atheist. But you're not the first atheist. You're following someone. It may be you have a very clear sense of the books you read and the people who influenced you and the reasons you're an atheist. It, it may be you just kind of picked it up in the ether. We're all followers of someone. My question this morning is, who do you follow? And are they good to follow? Will they get you home? Um, in the UK, there is this TV show called The Great British Bake Off. Do you have a, a Canadian equivalent? The, the, like The Great Canadian Bake Off? Yeah? You know, members of the general public in a bake off. I pretend not to watch it. 
Uh, but if I walk into the room and my daughter is watching, I'm kind of hooked. I kind of go, no, I'm just, I'm just, oh, what do you think? Um, one week, there was this technical challenge that they were set. They all had to make this unpronounceable Croatian bread. Uh, the idea is they're given very, you know, basic instructions, and they have to figure out the rest for themselves on how to make this Croatian bread. And what I noticed as I was pretending not to watch the thing was all the other bakers spent their time peering across at one particular contestant called Chetna. And they're all trying to follow her. And I said to my daughter, why are they all looking at her like that? And she said, oh, because in an earlier round where you get to make the bread of your choice, that was the bread she had chosen to make. You see? They knew that she knew what she was doing. The person to follow is the person who knows. It's the one who knows who will get you home. And Jesus of Nazareth says, follow me. And we think, what does he know? A religious teacher from the first century. He is steeped in a culture that was intolerant, that was oppressive. We, We know way more about the world than he did. I mean, what does he know? Why would anyone follow Jesus today? At the end of his gospel, John tells us why he's written his gospel. He says he's written so that we would see why Jesus is worth following. He's writing to skeptics. And the point is, we are all on the spectrum of skepticism. So it may be you're a convinced atheist, but it may be you're a Christian of many years. And you still hit those moments when you think, really? Follow him? Give my life to follow him, Jesus of Nazareth? The time is when you wonder. You think, am I doing the right thing? Am I following the right guy? One of the ways John helps us to get a handle on Jesus, one of the ways in which he shows us he is worth following, is to show us how people who first encountered him reacted to him. And one such encounter is the one that I've just read. And I'm going to break it into three scenes. Look with me at John chapter 1, 43 to 51. Scene 1, I'm going to call Philip's discovery. Philip's discovery. Jesus says to Philip, follow me. And so Philip starts to follow Jesus. And the first thing he does is he tracks down his friend Nathaniel and says, you've got to follow Jesus. It's a striking thing. People who follow Jesus just can't seem to keep him to themselves. They want everyone to follow him. Why? I mean, maybe that's your question. Why does my, why does my friend keep bugging me about Jesus? Why does my dad keep bugging me about Jesus? Why do they think Jesus is worth following? Well, why does Philip think Jesus is worth following? Look at verse 45. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote. Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. What are you saying? He's Nathaniel, Nathaniel. Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph, the carpenter. He's the one Moses wrote about in the law. He's the one about whom the prophets wrote. You say, well, what what does that mean? Well, the law and the prophets is a way of talking about the the Old Testament. And early on, we read in the Old Testament that there is a God who made the world and he made it good. But something has gone wrong. We have gone wrong. And so the God who made the world promises that one day he would 
send someone into our world to put things right. And you remember the Lord takes Abraham and he says, look, the one the world is waiting for will be one of your descendants. So the Old Testament follows the story of the descendants of Abraham. Who's it going to be? Who's it going to be? And as we move on to the prophets, we we, we learn that this descendant would not just, just be a descendant of Abraham, but a king in the line of David, a great king, a king who would do justice, a king who would deal with all that's wrong in this world and put things right, a king who would do justice on a scale never seen before. King who would mend broken hearts. King who would remake this whole broken world so there'll be no more tears. And his kingdom was going to be made up of people from all kinds of different backgrounds, all kinds of different nations. It was going to be wonderful. And it was going to last forever. And you're reading the Old Testament and you're thinking... Who is this king going to be? I mean, what, what sort of king can mend broken hearts and remake this broken world? What sort of king can reign over a kingdom that is going to last forever? And it's no surprise that the sort of language they use about him is God language. That's where the Old Testament lands. That's the promise. The Lord is coming. God himself is coming to the rescue. Now, do you see what Philip is saying? He's saying, Nathaniel, God has kept his promise. Jesus of Nazareth is the one Moses and the prophets wrote about. He's the one we've been waiting for. Do you see what that means, friends? It means he's not just another first century teacher. He is God come to the rescue. That's what John sets us up for at the start of his gospel. Just look across to John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. See, he starts by talking about the Word who was God. And this Word who was God was the one who made all things. And then you read down, you're reading and you're reading, you get to verse 14, and the Word became flesh. The one who was God, the one by whom all things were made, became a human being and was born in a stable. And they called him Jesus. That's the claim John starts his gospel with. He starts right from the outset. Jesus is not just another teacher. Don't think that. He is God come to the rescue. And as he encounters Jesus, that's the conclusion that Philip comes to. He goes, it's him. It's the one we've been waiting for. Now, I'm not saying that proves it. I'm just saying if that was true... Can you see why Jesus would be someone worth following? The person to follow is the person who knows. What does Jesus know? Well, what if he's the one who made all things? Several years ago, there was this big exhibition on in London, this art exhibition called Sensation. It was a 
showcase of the kind of giants of the contemporary British art scene. I don't know whether you've heard of people like Damien Hirst, Tracy Emin, Sarah Lucas, people like that. It, it's all kind of pickled sharks and neon signs, that kind of stuff. And I wandered round it, and I kind of wandered round looking at this stuff, and I'm not sure if I got it, you know? I wanted to get it. And I was talking to a friend afterwards, and I said, I'm not, I'm not sure if I got it. And he said, okay, meet me at the gallery next week. I want to introduce you to a friend of mine. Said, mm, okay, we'll do that. You know. He said, he'll be able to help you. I said, oh, okay. Yeah. So I showed up, and my friend William introduced me to his friend Gavin, Gavin Turk, who turned out to be one of the artists. It was an amazing experience to stand in front of Gavin Turk's pieces, which were waxworks of himself disguised as someone else. <clears throat> and, I, and I said, can you, can you explain this to me? And let me tell you, he made it. And when it came to what his art was all about, he knew. He knew like no one else. If Jesus was just another teacher who popped up in Palestine, what would he know? Why would you follow him? But if he is the one by whom all things were made, I know that maybe for some of you that if is about 100 miles high, but if he is the one by whom all things were made, if he is the one who made the stars and made the dragonflies and made you, Maybe he can explain you. You say, what does he know? Well, what if he made you? Scene one was Philip's discovery. Jesus of Nazareth is God come to the rescue. Scene two is Nathaniel's skepticism. Nathaniel kind of bursts Philip's little bubble. Verse 46, um, Nathaniel said to him, look, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Now, Nazareth was a bit like... Well, it's hard for me to say. If, if, if we were in the UK, I would say Nazareth was a bit like a place called Slough. Slough is the kind of place no one admits to coming from. You, do you know Windsor, where Windsor Castle is, where the Queen lives? Slough is just along the way from Windsor. And people who come from Slough, you ask them where they come from, and they say, oh, just outside Windsor. It's just famously kind of ugly, dull, and insignificant. It is totally overshadowed by the town next to it. Uh, I, I don't know, what, what would the equivalent be in the, the GTA? I don't know. You have to tell me. What, what would it be? What would it be? I'm, not, I'm hearing all kinds of contestants. So just, <laughs> you need to work with me. Give me one name. Acton. Acton. Okay, we're going to go with Acton. Okay? So Nathaniel is thinking... If God is going to come to the rescue, he's not going to come from Acton. <laughs> he's going to come from Paris or Beijing or London or New York. Or, not Acton. <laughs> you say, well, why not? Why, why shouldn't he come from Nazareth? See, see, Nathaniel's argument boils down to, look, we know what a dump Nazareth is. And there is his friend Philip saying, God has come to the rescue. And Nathaniel is in danger of dismissing the whole thing. Why? Because of prejudice. Because of prejudice. Don't you want to say, oh, Nathaniel, hold on. What if there's something in this? You're going to walk away just because of what you think about Acton? You see, we, we, hate, we hate prejudice. But when it comes to Jesus of Nazareth, that is what we so often are. Prejudiced. 
We say, well, of course it's not true. I mean, we all know Jesus never existed. If that's you, can I ask, who are you following? There is no serious historian of the ancient world who doubts that Jesus existed. You've got non-Christian writers in the ancient world like Tacitus and Pliny and Josephus. They talk about Jesus Christ. They despise what he stood for, yeah, but they never deny his existence. And yet this kind of urban myth goes around the internet, never even existed. You're going to walk away from a claim like this because of an urban myth? Who are you following? Or other people I speak to, they say, oh, we all know. We all know the Gospels were written in the second century, you know. You know, there were stories based loosely on the life of Jesus, and they got elaborated over time. And where did you get that from? Who, who are you following? J- John's gospel was written by John, who was one of Jesus' closest friends. He was writing somewhere between the late 60s and 70s. And you say, ah, yeah, oh, well, if Jesus was crucified in the 30s, still scope for a lot of slippage between the 30s and the 60s and 70s. But when John wrote this down, that the substance of his gospel had been going round Europe for 40 years. This is what Paul and the other apostles had been teaching. And now towards the end of his life, John is pulling it together. So, okay, well, maybe, maybe uh, Christianity is rooted in history, but, but it is from Nazareth. I mean, it is kind of primitive. We've moved on. This is the 21st century. This is the GTA. I don't care about some man from Nazareth in the first century. What I care about is being rational. I care about human rights. I care about justice. I care about the environment. I care about freedom. I care about love. That's what my life is all about. How is Jesus of Nazareth relevant to any of that? Friends, if Philip is right then everything you care about in life flows from Jesus of Nazareth. If he, if he is the one by whom life was created, then you can't make sense of your life without him. Do you care about being rational? Jesus is the only one who makes sense of rationality. See, if there is no God, if there is only matter, what do you mean when you talk about the mind? You see, if the universe is essentially irrational, where is your foundation for this rationality that you care about? Or you care about justice? Well, Jesus is the one who makes justice possible. See, the only hope of justice in this world is if there is a judge. If there's no judge, if there's no ultimate arbiter of right and wrong, then when it comes to right and wrong, what are we left with? My view against your view. Whose view do we go with? See, if there's no judge, we end up in a world where the person who holds sway is the person with the biggest guns. There's no hope of justice in a world like that. You care about human rights? Jesus gives us a reason to care. See, we've been brought up to believe we're just naked apes, just another animal. It's all just about the survival of the fittest. And yet, we want to protect the weak and the vulnerable. We want to protect their rights. Why? Well, Jesus says all human beings are precious. They are worth protecting because we're not just animals. We're made in the image of God. You care about the environment? Jesus gives us our reason to care. He says, we're not just another part of it. 
but we were created to care for it. You care about freedom? Jesus says he's come to set us free. You care about love? Jesus says he's come to show us what love is. Don't do a Nathaniel. Don't just go, ah, there can't be anything in it. Jesus from Nazareth. What if everything you long for is found in him? One of, my, one of my great heroes is a guy who was an artist who sort of became a writer, a guy called G.K. Chesterton. And he tells the story of how he wanted to find answers. And the last place he thought to look was Jesus Christ. So after years of searching, he was kind of downhearted to realize that Christ was the answer. He said he felt like an explorer heading out to discover new continents, but washing up on an English beach. You see? As in what he was looking for was there all along, right under his nose. And in Jesus, Philip says to his friend Nathaniel, don't be so prejudiced. Don't, don't go with a crowd. Come see Jesus for yourself. And fair play to Nathaniel, he does come along. So we had Philip's discovery, Nathaniel's skepticism, scene three, Jesus nails Nathaniel. Do you see what happens? Verse 47. Uh, Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. No deceit. There's an honesty about Nathanael. You start telling him that the one the world has been waiting for is from Nazareth, and he's not all British about it. It's not kind of charming, you know. But if that makes you happy, that's lovely. That's fine. For you, that's lovely. He tells you straight, just don't be ridiculous. Can't be. But then he comes to see for himself. And some people are not honest, are they? They they say, well, I've got a lot of questions about this whole Jesus thing. There's a lot of questions. You say, well, come and look into it. And they go, nah. You see? If that's you, don't follow the crowd. Come and look. I mean, isn't that what you're all about? Being open-minded, looking at the evidence. Come and look. Some people are telling themselves that there's too many questions. They can't believe it's true. When the truth is they haven't looked because they don't want it to be true. Not everyone, but there may be some people here this morning, you don't want it to be true. Others, like Nathaniel, are up for investigating. If only because he respects his friend Philip enough to come and have a look. And again, I don't know. Maybe you think this is so unlikely. But you've got a friend who's a Christian and you, you, you respect them. They're not totally wacko. And you think, well, why does she follow Jesus? Aren't you a little bit intrigued? And Jesus sees Nathaniel across the street, sees him coming, and he says, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. And Jesus' words weird Nathaniel out. Do you see? Hold on. What is this? Of of all the words you could have said to me, why these words? He's thinking, do you see what he says, verse, verse 48? How do you know me? How do you know me? My closest friends don't, get me. They, they see me as a cynic. They think I'm just trying to be awkward. When I, I'm not trying to be awkward. I, I'm just honest. I'm just trying to be honest about my questions. This complete stranger, he gets me in one. How do you know me? 
You see it again in chapter 4 of John's gospel. There is this woman who says, come and meet a man who told me everything I did. How does Jesus know? Jesus says, see the second half of verse 48? Well, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. How does he know? Well, Jesus has seen him already, sitting under a fig tree. Oh, okay, that explains it then. He saw him under... What? That doesn't explain a thing, does it? The way we get to know someone is not kind of look at them under a fig tree. We, we, we ask them questions. Where are you from? What do you do? That kind of thing. And Nathaniel realizes there was none of that. He just looked at me, nailed me. How do you know me? And then he puts two and two together. He goes, oh. Verse 49, do you see? Nathaniel answered him, Rabbi. You are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. You see the connection Nathaniel is making? Last summer we were on vacation, staying in this little house in the countryside. And this little house had issues with the, the washing machine that was leaking. And the owner said he'd come and take a look at it. And one morning, I was, I was lying in bed, I was reading, everyone else was out, and I was in bed reading, and I hear footsteps in the corridor. And I'm thinking, what is going on? There's, there's footsteps in the corridor. And this man uh, just bursts into my bedroom, and calm as you like, he says, it's all right, I just need to get the pipes, they're in the cupboard here. <laughs> I didn't call the police, because I immediately knew who he was. Yeah, I knew the owner was coming. The fact that this man kind of knew his way around the house, he knew where the pipes were, showed me he was the one we were expecting. I mean, he still might have knocked and everything, but but I could see who he was. I could make the connection. Yeah? Do you see the connection Nathaniel is making? Philip claimed Jesus was our creator, the one who knows us. And now Nathaniel's thinking, the fact that Jesus knows Nathaniel means Nathaniel sees. Oh, yeah. Philip was right. You're not just another teacher. You're the son of God. You're the king of Israel. You are the one we've been waiting for. Did you see what's happened? I was trying to find a way of picturing it, and I remember, well, I kind of half remember a story we used to read the children when they were small. It was something like this. There was this group of trolls who'd found a new hill to play on. And they were exploring this hill. They were jumping up and down on it. And suddenly, this hill they were playing on starts to move. And the hill stands up. And it turns out the hill is not a hill. The hill is a huge dragon that is now towering over them, looking down on them. And they are terrified. That is the experience Nathaniel has with Jesus. The experience many people have had throughout history... You start by thinking, you are going to explore this small figure of ancient history. You're going to put him under your microscope. And then you realize he's bigger than you thought. And he won't fit under your microscope. You realize he's bigger than you. He's bigger than anyone. He's bigger than the universe itself. He is towering above you. If he's just a first century teacher, there might be bits of his teaching that you kind of like. You know, they resonate with you. But follow him. Stick with him for life? No. But you see the Jesus we meet on the pages of John's gospel? He's not just a first century teacher. He's the one who towers above us. He's the one who made us. What does he know? He knows everything. He knows everything. 
What that means is he knows me. He knows you. And it's a wonderful thing to be known. Wallace Stegner, who's one of my favorite American novelists, writes, What does more to stay us and keep our backbones stiff while the world reels around us than the sense we are linked with someone who listens and understands and so in some way completes us? See, we're blown around this way and that, following people who don't get us, and we're longing for someone who understands us. Here here is someone who does. Here is the one who understands us in a way that completes us. The God who made us. Jesus of Nazareth. People often say, say, I just can't believe God would be interested in me. If there is a God, I can't believe he'd be interested in me. What do you mean? He made you. Which means he knows you. He knows you better than you know yourself. He says that when you were being formed in your mother's womb, He says, I knew you. He says, when your parents split up, I was there. When your father died and nobody else understood what he meant to you, I did. As you struggle with ill health, I know how you feel when you lie awake at night. You're worried about your situation at work? I know. I know you love to bake, I know you love to fish, to play hockey, I know, the, I know the poems you write that no one else knows about. I know how your colleagues treat you, I've heard what they say. See, don't we have this thing where we have friends who know us from work, who know nothing about what we have to deal with at home, they don't get us. Or um, our family, they, they put us in a box, don't they? Every time mother says, well, she's always been a terribly serious girl, we wince. Because our friends love the way we we make them laugh. They they don't get us. Or think of people at church who put you under pressure to be someone you are not. Because they don't really know who you are. And it makes your head spin because sometimes you hardly know yourself. You feel as though you are so many different people and you want to know which is the, the real you. And you long for someone to pick up all the different fragments of your life and piece them together piece your story together someone who knows everything about you because they've seen it all someone who who gets you someone who can do a gavin turk on you and explain you to yourself here he is there's a lovely moment in the narnia chronicles in the the voyage of the dawn treader where um Eustace hears about Aslan, the, uh, the great lion who's king over all. And, and he says, but who is Aslan? Do you know him? And Edmund says, well, he knows me. Isn't that a wonderful thing to be able to say? Do you know the God by whom all things were created? Well, he knows me. Isn't that a wonderful thing to be known by him? It's also quite a frightening thing. He knows me. It means he knows not just my hopes and my hurts. He knows, he knows my darkest secrets. He knows the things I've done that I wouldn't want anyone to find out. 
He knows the thoughts I would hate anyone to know. He knows what I think of him. He knew that Nathaniel thought Jesus couldn't possibly have been the Messiah. He, he knows the ways in which I've thought of him as a joke. He knows the times when his name is just a swear word to me. He knows the ways in which I've gone right against everything he has asked of me. He knows that. He knows the truth. And aren't we afraid if people know the truth about us, we think, oh, if they know the truth about us, they wouldn't want to know us anymore. They'd walk away. Here is the knockout. Here is the one who does know the truth about us, knows it all. The one who had every right to walk away after how we've treated him, and yet he doesn't. It's the whole point. He has come for us. Because even though he knows the truth about us, even though he knows how we treat him, he loves us. It comes out a little bit in verse 51. And uh, Jesus said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Nathaniel is amazed. God's great king knows me. And Jesus says, you'll see greater things than that. Watch me and you will see not just that I know you, but here's the thing. I've come to lead you home. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. You say, what is, what is that all about? Would you remember Jesus called... Um, Nathaniel, what he called him uh, in verse 47, an Israelite indeed. Now, in the Old Testament, there was a guy called Jacob who was later renamed Israel, an Israelite indeed. And the Lord had promised to take Jacob to the promised land. And at one point, Jacob is not sure if the Lord is worth following, but the Lord gives him a vision angels going up and down this ladder do you remember that that connects heaven to earth and it's a vision of heaven reaching down to earth and Jacob was a pretty nasty piece of work but the Lord knows the truth about Jacob and yet he says to him Jacob I won't walk away I am the God who reaches down from heaven to you and the Lord says I will be with you and I will never leave you and I will lead you to the promised land. And Jacob says, well, if God is the sort of God like that, if he's the sort of God who will be with me and lead me to the promised land, then I will follow him. Now, do you see what Jesus is doing here? The Son of Man is his way of talking about himself. And he's saying, I am the ladder. I know what you're like. I know the truth about you. Yes, but I am reaching down from heaven to earth. I have come for you. I've come to be with you. And I will never leave you. And I've come to lead you, not just to the promised land, but to the promised new creation. World made new, where every tear will be wiped dry. I've come to lead you home. He's saying to Nathaniel, watch me. Watch what I do and you will see. I've come to lead you home. 
Do you see why Jesus of Nazareth is the one to follow? He made us and he knows us. And because he loves us, he's come down from heaven for us. Follow him, friends. He will get us home. He will. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we marvel that you know us, you know what we're like, and yet still you came. You came for us, knowing what coming for us would cost you, knowing that it would mean your death on a cross. We pray that you would give each one of us such a sight of you that we would be renewed in our conviction and our commitment and our desire to follow you because there's just no one else worth following oh please help us to do that we pray today and tomorrow and next week and next month and on for the rest of our days till you lead us home amen